Hello, you're very welcome to this week's Future Fix. Today, we're looking at our sustainable development goals as they touch on water, both fresh water and our oceans. And later on, we'll join a gaggle of excitable children at a workshop on marine life and sustainable seafood during Science Week. In drawing them in, Dr. Robin Barry had a wonder of things to show them. We've got some starfish. Uh, this one is uh, one of our two species. It's called a cushion starfish. And then we also have our common starfish as well down below here in the observatory tank. Yeah, they're beautiful creatures. And the starfish, um, particularly the common starfish, if a predator grabs one of its legs, it will actually shed its leg if it can't get free. And then it can rejuvenate a new leg for itself. So it's a very interesting creature. And scientists are looking into it, how they actually are able to rejuvenate their limbs. There'll be future benefits for us if we can figure out how to do it. So a lot of scientists are studying it at the moment, yeah. We'll come back again to the ocean in a wee while. But to start out, we're going to look in on Connie Nell at the community garden in Cranmore. And she's going to talk about the liquid stuff that falls from the sky before it makes its way to the oceans. The gardeners there had plans for a rainwater harvesting system. But Connie was nudged into thinking about simpler options when she embarked on a project with local teenagers to build a pizza oven. So this all started with us, I suppose, communicating with the local authority waters programme and our local um, water officer, Karen Kennedy. And it was around uh, having the rainwater harvesting coming from the main roof of our workshop and into water butts and then going into the polytunnel. We have all the pipes for it and we have a timer and a pump and everything. There's two 1,000 litre butts there. And um, it, the idea is, yeah, to, to collect the water as much as you can throughout the year and then you know definitely when we need it in the tunnel to be using it but so do you know the way we built our pizza oven last summer and then a roof was built over it and someone when I showed the plans that we had for it all someone said oh are you going to collect the rainwater off that roof so I said hmm I'll say that to the guy building the roof for us and he was like yeah no problem and got the gutter and down pipes installed and everything. Who would have thought that this would be the starting point for getting the community to think about lots of different issues relating to water. I guess the idea comes from flood prevention. So um, especially sort of small urban gardens, there would be a lot of concrete now and the water just doesn't have anywhere to go anymore. And so before you just let it all go down the drain and the drain might not be able to take it all, you divert it and do something pretty with it and do, and create some life with it. I think that's, that's the idea. Do you know the way they're talking about nature-based solutions a lot so this would be one of them because I think it's also around water conservation and even during those workshops we were chatting about why don't we just all use rainwater all the time at least for the toilet or for showering or for all sorts of things in the household you know it's really mind-boggling how much we have in this country and how we don't use it also the problems with flooding and with, with too much water and too fast and all that are only going to get worse Especially in urban um, spaces, you know, in, in where everything is just built up so much. Um, there's just no soil anymore. The water doesn't yeah. doesn't know where to go. Um, you know, I suppose there's no life. There's no, everything is hidden and dying under concrete. Now, I suppose it could take a bit of planning to organise rainwater for using inside your house. But Connie also offered a much simpler idea which is practical for any household with a bit of outdoor space. A rainwater planter. 
you have your flower planter in that specific size that would be ideal for a roof a specific size and then you lay it out with tarp so that uh, the water can't get out basically you're trapping the water in that planter you put in a layer of gravel and then there's another layer of tarp but that gets poked with holes which was the, the best part of the workshop everyone with screwdrivers and scissors and <laughs> knives poking the tarp the next bit is you have two holes at one of the end you attach your downpipe basically to the planter so you have a um, these are called rainwater diverter kits you cut your downpipe open and you insert this bit and a tube comes out of it a, um, a hose a pipe and that then goes into the planter and in the planter you have a hose or a pipe sort of running throughout the whole planter and that one has holes poked in it as well um, and so I guess the, the rainwater comes down your pipe goes into the planter through the holes soaks the entire planter and then there's the other hole the second hole and the water the excess water comes out then you add um, a mixture of soil and sand really compost a, two, a one to two mixture there's all sorts of lists online that you can look up and um, the, the suitable plants there's sort of like lily type of plants and there's certain grasses that that go go well in these you know um it's kind of nearly like um plants that you would get for near a pond on the edge of a pond or even in a pond you know like so bog garden i suppose it all means really well 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 drained wet soil and for us it's not so much about you know planting up the perfect planter you know and have it here so it looks pretty but also more of a conversation starter you know so it's there now and anyone that comes in gets shown it whether they want to see it or not so it's just another focal point in the garden to start conversations around why we build it and why it's important and that way have those conversations and have the educational sort of awareness raising piece around all sorts of issues mm-hmm. water in particular i mean i mean you know where would we be without water that's what we're do. what we're trying to do here in the garden as well you know it's just to I suppose have some sort of focus on one particular issue to then have the broader conversations at the same time and to always try and get across how interconnected everything is and how everything really matters to everything else. I suppose when we were doing the the art workshop uh, there was a lot of um, people that wanted to paint animals and then we got talking about other bits again and here it's all around so I mean I suppose some of the funding was given to us for a biodiversity Mm. project and really that's what the whole garden is trying to do to sort of be more biodiversity friendly. And so something as simple as a planter sparks ideas around flood prevention, encouraging lots of different types of life, water harvesting and biodiversity. Actually, Robin Barry was taking a very similar approach down at ATU Sligo with his collection of sea creatures and microscopes. The more hands-on workshops we do about nature and the environment, like what we're doing here today, the kids are getting up close and personal with the specimens that they'll find around the locality of their coastal area. And then when they go out in the next time, the beach, there could be more eyes of me opening, plus they'll be able to recognise the species and they'll start looking for more species then. I bring in aquatic insects, the vertebrates for rivers, but I also bring in terrestrial insects like your centipedes, your millipedes, your ground beetles, your woodlouse. 
and we put them into boat viewers and the kids can see them. So we teach them about their importance, how they are food sources for birds and animals, and then any contaminants get into those insects, we also get into the other creatures. And the kids can build up that picture and they'll become more connected to nature and the environment. Then we can hopefully try and protect our nature and protect our environment and protect our well-being going forward. Now, what Robin had here were examples of sea creatures that can be easily found on our local beaches. Any of us might spot them when we're out for a walk, if we look closely enough. These are lugworms. So the fishermen catch these and they use these to catch the fish. These are lugworms. And the one next to it over here is called a ragworm. And when you walk along the beach, you see the sand casts in the beach. You know, little twirls of sand? And that's these guys, because they eat the sand and they take all the minerals and nutrients from the sand and they clean the sand and put it back onto the beach. So they actually keep clean the beaches for us humans. Is there a focus? Can you see the ragworm? Yeah, that's pretty good. Have a look there yourself. So they filter feed the sand and absorb the minerals and nutrients from it and they do organic matter. And then they pass it out in this pure sterile sand. So just like we get it from our food sources, they're getting it from the sand. Again, sewage is, is an organic matter. So for some specimens, it's not a big problem for them. It's only because us humans, we, we react to the, to the, um, the fecal coliforms. But they actually clean a lot of that out of the beach and they purify it. So it's actually good for us humans. A lot of the birds come along then, uh, the wobblers and the oyster catchers with the big long beaks and they'd be probing down into the sand trying to catch them. So they're a very important part of the ecosystem and the food chain. Uh, that one's about maybe eight inches long when it stretches out. That's yeah. the average size that I find. And you'll, so when you walk along with the tides out, you'll see the sand casts in this, in the, on, the, on, the, on the beach itself. Spirals. Little spirals, yeah. And that's them filtering the sand, absorbing the minerals and nutrients from the sand and purifying it. Then we have some sea anemones, and you'll see them over here a bit better now. That one's under the microscope. Um, these are the, uh, we have a, her, um, a hermit crab here, you can see the hermit crab, yeah, see him sticking these legs out. Then we've got some more um, uh, shellfish species, so these are edible, we've got our limpets, and we've got our periwinkles, so they're edible, and we have also some sea urchins here, now these are small ones, but you can get bigger ones and you can also eat them, but they're a beautiful creature, I don't tend to eat them myself because I like them. Uh, but they can grow a lot bigger and you can get them in different colours of greens, blacks and kind of purples and some are kind of red as well. So they're sea urchins and they're a very sensitive species as well if, to, to pollution. Robin is a marine biologist and he's keen to emphasise the linkages between human activity and marine life. Now I asked him about sustainable seafood, something that I always find extremely complicated. Instead of launching into complex explanations around fishing methods and fish species, he pointed directly to our seashore. In the summertime, it's great to go off to kind of find the cockles and to harvest the cockles when the tides are out. And it connects the children with the food sources that the sea provide for us. Yeah. So it's good, yeah. So if someone were looking to harvest a cockle, what would they do? So you'd go to a sandy beach, you'd go on a very low tide. And you're sometimes, quite often, not actually exposed on the low tide and in amongst the sand, and they're white, so they're easy enough to spot. And then you pick them up. Those are the shells with the ridges, kind of. Um, they have little ridges on them, yes. So that's them there. But they're kind of like a little pixie hat almost. And that's probably as big as they get now, which is maybe an inch, inch and a half. And um, they're a beautiful food source. What we do then is we put them into some salt water, we leave them there for maybe 12 or 14 hours, and then we filter out any of the sand that's in them. So a great idea to do with the mussels is just leave it in a bucket of salt water and they'll naturally filter themselves out and you'll see the sand then released from them into the bottom of the bucket and then when you go to steam them or cook them, um, they're less gritty again, they're more easily consumed. Then we also have then some of the other empty shells here on the bench, we've got our um, oysters, we've got our Atlantic oyster, our Pacific oysters, 
and then we have our mussels, we have our scallops, um, our cockles and our clams and we also have some razor fish as well. So these are all edible shellfish we have here in Ireland. So long ago, when um, in, back in poor times, a lot of people survived from the seashores. So it was kind of known as a poor person's food. So the Irish weren't overly into seafood from the, the famine onwards. And a lot of our seafood here in Ireland actually gets exported out to France and Spain and to Mediterranean countries. But as time goes on, people are getting more into the Irish seafood. And we're very lucky here in Ireland. We've got some very fantastic mussels and oysters growing here in Ireland. We have our Dillisk here which is really good consumable. So you can pick your dillisk in a clean area. And what I do is, and my parents also, my parents pick it quite regularly in the summertime, and they leave it in the rain to wash out the salt and some of the iodines in it. And then we dry it in the sun. And then it's a really good food source. And in fact, it's, it's one of the most highest concentrated iron source, food sources we can eat. It's full of iron, it's really good for your body. And so people with, people, uh, ladies who are pregnant, it's very good for them. Um, people with low uh, red blood cells, it's very good for them to eat. So long ago, you may have been given a glass of Guinness, you know, because of the iron content. But uh, nowadays, it's recommended you go for the dillisk. It's way better, yeah. And also, you can chop it up and add it to salads. And the summertime, it's lovely. And also, what my father does is he gets a handful of it and puts it in with the potatoes and boils the potatoes with the dillisk. And there's naturally a little bit of salinity in it, the salt, and it'll flavour them and it'll also have the dillisk taste. Okay, yeah. but he wouldn't eat the dillisk that's in the pot of the uh, It gets a bit slimy, but he serves it up with the potatoes and we eat it anyway. Okay. <laughs> it's great to get the kids into it when they're young and they actually get a real good taste for it. From about maybe two, three years of age on, you just give them a little bit yeah. and they love it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And this is our sea lettuce. And again, you can uh, let the rain wash it out, you dry it out and it'll shrivel up and you can add that to salads. It's a lovely one it is, yeah, it's really nice. And you can eat it on its own. And sometimes people, they'll put it into a stir fry or something like that, and it's really nice, yeah. Very, it's a, like an emerald green, basically, yeah. It's, it is almost fluorescent, yes. And it's actually kind of transparent when you hold it up. So it's an unusual green. And as that dries out, it will then shrink and shrivel up. And it'll actually become hard, same as a dillisk. So you can eat it directly, or I chop it up and put it into salads. And this one's like the sea spaghetti as well. So you can eat that one, yeah. And this one here is a very good one. It's, uh, it's kombu, it's called. And it's full of nutrients and minerals. And lots of people on the islands to this day still eat it. And again, you let the rain wash it out, uh, let the sun dry it, it shrivels up, and it kind of gets hard. So what we do is we cut into strips and we put it in with our stews. And it's really nice in the stews. And what my dad does, he, um, he roasts it on top of the stove as well. And he uses like an hors d'oeuvre dressing. Yeah and also you can put it into stir fries and it's very good for you. It's got calcium and magnesium and iodine in it as well. It's very good for you. And the one I don't have here, usually I have this, uh, I make up gelatin from it, is our corrigine moss. And it's been used for thousands of years here in Ireland and you see a lot of the ladies, elderly ladies live in the islands, got beautiful skin and really um, fresh looking skin they have. And that's because they, they simmer it in milk and they will then strain the milk off and they will let it set in in the fridge it goes to like a jelly and then they sometimes they'll sprinkle a bit of cinnamon on it put a little bit of local honey and maybe chop a banana or a little bit of fruit onto it and that's a dessert and that's an ancient dessert we were using for thousands of years here in Ireland Raffin brings out the interconnection between ourselves and these marine creatures by highlighting to the children that what they put into bins and skips and the way in which we produce our food can affect marine creatures directly
and that that also has a knock-on effect on our own food. Well, shellfish are full of nutrients and minerals. They're very good for your body. And also our genetics and our DNA recognises those food because we've been eating them for thousands of years. So we react generally fairly good to them. But you have to be careful in the times of year when you pick the different types of shellfish because of red tides and algae blooms. So uh, algae can produce uh, toxins to get into the water and they're like a neurotoxin then. If you eat them then the shellfish are highly concentrated and it can affect our bodies. So you have to be very careful then the time of year. So you can eat them with an hour in the month and be careful if there's no hour in the month. And because all of these shellfish are filter feeders, they're front line exposed to any pollutants in the water. And they're filtering all the little microbes in the water, all the microscopic foods. And if there's any contamination in the water, it'll affect these creatures. And they will be the first ones to become contaminated. So over time, those toxins can build up in your system. So you want it to come from clean waters that aren't overly exposed to industry or to sewage or anything like that. So kind of remote areas away from any intensive agriculture or industry is the best place to collect your shellfish. So if you go, if you have a beach in your local town or city, it's grand to go and have a look at them. But I'd move out into more of the rural areas and I'd pick to see uh, the, the shellfish from, from those areas. It'd be cleaner. In certain areas, we're losing our biodiversity because of pollution. Because they're low down in the food chain, uh, any other uh, species on the shoreline that are eating any of these shellfish, they'll get those contaminants into them. And as you move further up in the food chain to species higher up, they'll get more concentration of the chemicals into them because they might be eating the shrimps, the shellfish, the lugworms, so they're getting more exposure to whatever contaminants are in the water. So species higher up in the food chain have a bio, higher bio-concentration of the contaminants in their system. They're a very important part of the food chain, the ecosystem, and as I said, they're filter feeders, so whatever's in the water will be in their system. You've probably gathered from the rising noise level that there was a lot of energy around as the kids explored and discussed all the different things that Robin had to show them. I hope you'll take that as a good sign and listen on through the home because we were just getting to the nitty gritty of the issues. Next, a sobering bit of perspective. One of our big issues facing our marine environment at the moment is our plastics. We have lots of plastics getting into our marine environment and they get broken down into microplastics and into nanoplastics. And then that gets into the food chain with the smaller species and it bioaccumulates up through the food chain then with the different species eating the lower species in the food chain. So you were talking about chemicals earlier, but that yep. equally now is happening with plastics. Microplastics indeed. So there's lots of chemicals within the microplastics and they, we know that they, they can cause cancer, they're carcinogenic, some of these microplastics, and also we know they affect both our fertility and the marine species fertility as well. Because what a lot of people don't realise is that a lot of plastics have what we call oestrogen mimicking compounds. They mimic the female hormone oestrogen, and that can affect their fertility. So as more and more plastics enter our environment, it gets further and further into the food chain and the, the more time they're in the aquatic environment, the smaller pieces will break down and they'll get into the substrate, so they'll get into the, our lugworms, our ragworms, they'll get into the birds feeding on those species. So it can biomagnify then as it goes up through the food chain. And species high above in the food chain then will have a higher concentration of the microplastics inside their system, the species lower down. And therefore those species will be more affected. Yeah. And also then the other big problem we have is lots of pesticides and herbicides and fungicides getting into our waterways. And it's, a lot of it gets into our rivers and of course then it'll transfer down through the rivers into our, into our seas and into our local estuaries. And those chemicals have a detrimental impact on species as well. So the likes of the glycophosphate from some of the herbicides that gets into the food chain and that seriously damages the fertility of some of the species as well as ourselves. 
and then we drive up along our motorways, we see the side of our motorways and we spray with the glycophosphate and it's usually along where the drains are along the side of the roads. So when it rains, those glycophosphates get washed straight into our drains and go straight into our rivers. So it doesn't even have time to kind of get into the soil because our weather here in Ireland is so variable. And that's a big issue. And then, of course, we have, in some of our national parks, we still have them using the glycophosphate to control the scrub. So when they cut the hazel, they will, they used to spray it, but now they'll rub it on to the stumps of the hazel. But of course, that gets into our underground aquifers and it stays in those waters and it's, it contaminates those waters and affects us humans. So we know that these glycophosphates are in our own food chain and it's affecting the fertility of us as human beings. Between the plastics and the pesticides, it's impacting our ability to reproduce. It's not the way forward because it's going to affect our children and our grandchildren more in the future than it's affecting us already now. Lots of children noticed pipes bubbling into fish tanks. And this brought up the subject of oxygen dissolved in the water, which is essential for life. So the air is bubbling into us, they're putting oxygen into the water. So the likes of the fish and the shrimps, they're absorbing oxygen in the water. In the sea, as the waves would move back and forth and crash over the rocks, they'd naturally take in air back into the water. So um, a lot of these species, they need a certain amount of oxygen within the water from survive. You'd have um, waters with what we call lots of organic waste in it. That increases the microbial population of the water. And the microorganisms in the water, because of the availability of the food, they'll increase in numbers. And those microorganisms consume oxygen as they break down the organic matter. Uh, sensitive species that need oxygen-rich waters, they can suffocate. Yeah. So that's why it's really important that you see some in the, some of the salmon rivers and the trout rivers, these weirs and the water's falling over those weirs and oxygen is re-put into the water naturally. The steps in those weirs, so as the water falls, it's bringing air into the water and the oxygen's getting back into the water and it's oxygenating the water. Also, it can be runs then for the fish. If, if it's a hard area, from get up, they can go up through the weir and make their way up into deeper waters as well. Robin neatly linked all of these issues together by pointing to a new way of fish farming that's being tried out in the Netherlands. It's a new area. They're doing it over in Holland. They're growing fish in the fish tanks, but they're using all of the water from the fish tanks to grow their lettuces and their vegetables. They're using the um, excrement of the fish as a fertilizer. So they've got the fish over here, and then they've got the wastewater coming out of it, and that feeds all of the vegetables they're growing. They're doing it in a more natural way with the fish as well. They're using less chemicals with the fish feed because a lot of the fish farms are high in antibiotics. And, and uh, a lot of those fish, then there's dyes put into the pellets that are fed to give them that pinky looking colour. If you look at the fishmonger's ice, you'll see some of it leaching out into the ice. And you can tell then it's farmed. And then the problems they're causing to the local marine environment from that then as well. You know, the sea lice, the chemicals, the excrement that they're releasing is getting into the food chain then as well. I think these guys in Holland, they were like, they're waste bits of vegetables. They were getting them and chopping them up and getting them back to the fish. Well, I hope you've taken something from our mixing up of human life, sea life, fresh waters and oceans today. To see us out, we'll slip back into the past as Connie Nell introduces us to a short story written about life by a childhood stream in County Sligo which she shared by the Garavogue River on Heritage Day. It's called Stories from the Waterside and it was a project. I, I, I just looked up the website and there was a few stories for Sligo. Everyone uses water all the time, everyone has some memories. And this one was called Our River. Turns out it's not actually the Garavogue. Uh, will I read it to you? We were inland children. We knew nothing of the tides or the ocean. 
The river running through our land is woven into our lives and we learn with our scrutiny the depth of our experience outweighing the lack of width. We know our river is connected to an intricate pattern of lakes and bigger rivers that finally flow into the vast Atlantic Ocean. In May, a suffusion of orchids, bluebells, cuckoo flowers, primroses, buttercups and marsh marigolds grow along the bank and we pick them for the May altar, offering them to Our Lady as precious gifts. We know every detail of that river as it passes through our land. Beyond the fences, the river becomes foreign to us. We hold small cupped hands in the water and feel it run through our fingers with shivery delight. The water is yellow, but so clear we could count each stone on the riverbed if we wanted, and it sparkles in the sunlight. We define the river into three main play areas, the widest part with the stepping stones into the meadow, the water flowing swiftly, a gap in the middle that must be jumped and leads to skin toes. The narrowest and deepest part near the fence is used for jumping games. Just across the road from our house is our favourite spot. This is the part with sandy edges and shallow water where we paddle and splash and ceremoniously serve sandy cakes on wide leaves from the Lords and Ladies plant. This watery world is framed by whitethorn, columbine, wild honeysuckle, which we bite in search of nectar, meadowsweet, mists of cow parsley, ferns unfurling, and we live in terror of falling into nettles, and we scramble for dock leaves if we succumb to the stings. We lie in the long grass that shimmers in a haze of yellows, greens, gold and mauves, and dangle our feet in the water. The sun warm on our faces, glittering days that come from heaven with clear skies and time seems frozen. We examine clouds, we don't yet know words such as cumulus or stratus or cirrus, but when we do, we have all the pictures to match them. We follow their movement across the sky, interspersed with occasional jet stream, and we dream of going on an aeroplane one day to America maybe. There is the occasional hum of a tractor mowing grass in the distance, but mostly it is the steady creaking of cartwheels we hear on the sandy road. When the setting sun tinges the world with amber, we reluctantly leave the river. The river is not just our play area. We bring home the cows for milking and let them drink as much as they will, knowing not to interrupt them and fetching water from the river for the animals and the household is quotidian. We fetch water from our well too, and we can identify our neighbours' wells also by the taste of the water. The birds accompany us, the swallows returning and forming the backdrop of, to the summer with their swooping and diving in and out of the barn. We love to hear the first cuckoo, though we are dismayed by her theft and laziness. The winter comes with storms and flooding. The river is now a torrent to us and we are both fearful and excited to see this gushing water where once we paddled and we are warned to keep away. The river in all its guises is ours and we know it will be there tomorrow and the next day. What beautiful acclaim for the abundance of plants and wildlife, for childhood games, livestock and grasslands, all of which drew from this one unassuming stream. I thought it was a really sort of all-encompassing um, description of this river. Um, also feeling the water, we hold small cupped hands in the water and feel it run through our fingers with shivery delight. <laughs> so I think it's, it's really, it's lovely. Um, and it's also something that we did quite a bit 
And then I guess the very end, you know, the river in all its guises is ours and we know it will be there tomorrow and the next day. I suppose that might have changed now because we don't uh, very often know whether a river will be there tomorrow or the next day. Let's try to make a few changes to see that these beautiful things go on to remain part of the everyday world of children today.